If you brought your Bible, I'd love for you to take it and open it to Mark chapter 10. Mark is the shortest of the four biographies of Jesus. There are only 16 chapters in Mark's gospel. It is believed that Peter actually dictated the gospel of Mark, and Mark wrote it down. We're going to start in Mark chapter 10, and then we're going to springboard into John chapter 5. Today is the last, the final in a four-part series entitled New Me, and New Me is not a New Year's resolution series. New Me is a real-life change series, and we've discussed real-life change over the past four weeks based upon four kinds of people. They come from a book written by John Maxwell, the leadership guru of the 20th century. Dr. Maxwell says there are basically four kinds of people in the world, four kinds of people in your business, four kinds of people in every church. There are, first of all, people who never see it, people who, whatever it is, as significant as it may be, they simply never see it. We call them wanderers. There are people who see it, but they never pursue it. We call them followers. There are people who see it and pursue it. We call them achievers. And then there are those who see it, they pursue it, and they help other people see it. We call them leaders. Now, every week I've addressed one of these four kinds of people, and I've tried to show you what each person needs in order to take a step further, in order to take their faith walk deeper, to mature, grow, develop in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. In week one, we address the wanderers. Wanderers flat out can't see it. Whatever it is, it may be very, very significant. It may be a better marriage. It may be a more unified home. It may be a, a, a stronger financial setting. Uh, but they, they simply can't see it because they lack vision. Wanderers need vision. Every significant circumstance in your life, another way to say that, every circumstance of consequence in your life demands vision. If you can't see it, whatever it is, you're very unlikely to ever go and get it. In week two, we talk to the followers. Now, followers do see it. Followers know there's a strong marriage out there somewhere. They know there's a stronger financial position out there somewhere. They know there's a healthier body out there somewhere. They're just not motivated to go and get it. Followers need motivation. Last time, in week three, we talked to the achievers. Achievers not only see it, it's significant, so they go after it. More often than not, they do achieve it. But the problem is, if they get to the top of that mountain and they look around and they're all by themselves, what good is it really? What good is a father trying to lead in his home, a husband trying to lead in his marriage, if he's the only one that gets to the mountaintop? That brings us to today. Today we're going to talk to the leaders. A leader can not only see it, a leader can not only go after it and achieve it, but a leader can also help other people see it as well. This is the kind of leader that Jesus was. Jesus not only achieved his own personal goals, he not only perfectly fulfilled the will of his Father, he helped other people see it and climb the mountain as well. Now, leadership in our culture today means a lot of things. I think it typically means authority. Leadership means power. It means influence. If you're a leader in American culture today, you typically have responsibility. You probably have a large and significant number of followers on Instagram. Now think about those words. Power, authority, followers, responsibility, influence. Those aren't necessarily the first things we think about when we consider Jesus and his role 
as a leader. What I'm trying to get to and am about to illustrate is what Jesus and the remainder of the New Testament says is most important about leadership is not typically what we see as most important about leadership today in our culture. I did a little research this week. Did you know that T.D. Jakes has 5.7 million followers on Instagram? That number was way high. I would have never dreamed it was that high. Stephen Furtick has 3 million. Tim Tebow, 2.9 million. Christine Kane has 1.3 million. And Franklin Graham, 1.3 million. But leadership does not necessarily equal followers. Because according to Jesus, leadership is not about followers. It's not about influence. It's not about power, authority. It's not about responsibility. In fact, when you think about Jesus and his followers, he really only had 12. 12 followers, close followers. And among the 12, there was an inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. But now consider this, on the night that he was arrested, on that Thursday evening before the Friday morning crucifixion, he had zero. They all abandoned him. They all ran away and hid. In fact, for a few days after that, even after the resurrection, you might say that Jesus had no followers because they hadn't put it together yet. Christian leaders today may have a lot more followers than Jesus had in his day, but would anyone deny the impact Jesus' followers has had on the world? The few followers of Jesus Christ in the first century literally changed the world. It's not an overstatement to say they shaped history. They formed the future. You see, that's what Christ's leadership can do. You see, Christ's leadership differs from our understanding of leadership today because his style of leadership is servant leadership. Jesus was a servant leader. Are you familiar with this term? You ever heard this? Now, when you think of leaders in Washington, is that what you think about? When you think of politicians even locally, is that what you think about? When you think of any government official, anyone in a position of power and authority in our community, is that typically how we see them? That's because we've got the wrong idea of leadership. We've embraced the wrong style of leadership. Businessmen and women, fathers in homes, parents with children, we've embraced the wrong kind or style of leadership. Jesus was a servant leader. That's what set him apart. He served others. In Mark chapter 10, two of his closest disciples, part of that inner circle, James and John, they come to Jesus and they ask him for a favor. They say, Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, we'd like one of us to sit on your right and one of us to sit on your left. In other words, like us, they thought leadership meant power, visibility, influence, authority. Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, I'd like a seat on the right-hand side of your throne, and he would like a seat on the left-hand side of your throne. Now, Jesus' response to this question is to call all the disciples together and make sure they understand, truly understand his role as a leader and truly understand leadership as God sees it. In fact, what he does in Mark 10 is he contrasts and compares cultural leadership as we understand it with biblical leadership as he demonstrated. Look at Mark chapter 10 and verse 41. When the 10 heard about this, you can imagine how well this went over, right? When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John, and rightly so. 
Can you imagine the calloused hands of Peter the fisherman finding out that James and John have gone to Jesus privately and asked, when you set up your kingdom, could he sit on the right hand and I sit on the left? Can you imagine how Peter responded to that? Hey, John, you think you're better than me? Hey, James, you think you're better than me? I'm sure this didn't go over very well. They were indignant, the Bible says. Verse 42, Jesus called them all together and said, Now you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Now let me remind you of something you may not know. This is the second time Jesus has had to cover this same ground. Back in chapter 9 and verse 33, he talks about the same thing. Greatness in the eyes of God. Service as it is related to leadership and thereby greatness in the eyes of Jesus. He says, you understand that the rulers, those are the men and women in authority, place positions of power, authority, they lord it over their subjects. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Verse 43, not so with you. If you're my follower, Jesus said, this is not how you should lead. You shouldn't take your position of power and influence and lord it over anyone. That's not what makes a leader great. That's not what makes you a success as a leader among men. If you are a follower of Christ, not so with you. As I look around our community, this is one of the things that ought distinguish Christ-following homes and Christ-following businesses and Christ-following churches from not leadership. Greatness as defined by Jesus. This ought not be so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, there it is among you, must be your servant. Well, now, let's be honest. Who lives like this? Does anyone in our culture, in a position of prominence, power, and authority, live by that? If you want to be great, then become your servant. Verse 44, whoever wants to be first must be the slave, the word is servant, of all. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man. Now let's be honest. Who had more power than Jesus? Who had more authority than Jesus? Who had more influence ultimately than Jesus? And yet he said, even I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life. There's the service. That's the sacrifice. And that is what we will remember today. That is the distinguishing mark of Christ's leadership. It's how he leads our churches today. It's how fathers should lead their families. It's how businessmen and women should lead their companies. Service. The leadership style of Jesus was dramatically different than the leadership style of the Romans. The Romans were authoritarian. You disagree with Rome, you fall out of line, off with your head, so to speak. We'll nail you to a cross, but Jesus was a servant. And that kind of leadership anywhere is only possible in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verse 7, Jesus made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. That's the leader we follow today. That's the leader upon whose name this church is built. And that leader does not lead in this church as an authoritarian, as a dictator. That's not the way Jesus leads his church. 
No, he serves his church. He provides for his church. He cares for his church. Jesus is why we remember the sacrifice. Jesus was the leader he was because of his sacrifice. Now, some might misunderstand or assume mistakenly that Jesus was easy to follow, that since he was such a great leader, he must have been easy to follow. I mean, surely his love was so unconditional, his policies so inclusive, that anyone was welcome. Well, everyone was welcome, but not all would enter the kingdom according to Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus himself said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, not everyone who simply says, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, sure, I believe in God. I go to church every now and then. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what makes the difference? That's what I'm going to explain today. The New Testament does a masterful job of balancing two ideas, two theological principles. On the one hand, the New Testament disassembles, it tears down, it breaks apart legalism. Legalism is the belief that we not only believe in God, but we also have to be a good person. We have to act religious. We have to do certain things. We have to avoid doing other things. And if you don't toe the line, then you fall out of God's good grace. That's called legalism. But at the same time as denouncing legalism, the New Testament also strengthens the idea of authentic faith. It, it, it breaks down the idea of easy believism. James, the half-brother of Jesus, in his epistle in the latter part of the New Testament, James chapter 2, he asks the question, what good is dead faith? What good is faith that's nothing more than easy believism? Hey, God is so loving, everybody just buy in, jump on the bandwagon, and we all get a free ride to God. What good is that, James wants to know. Authentic faith is faith that shoulders responsibility. It's faith that carries a cross. It's faith that lives in self-denial, according to the New Testament. So while Christ's love is unconditional, he makes it clear that it's not always going to be easy to follow me. In fact, if you want to go ahead and turn to John chapter 5, I'll point out several things that Jesus said, that if I were one of his disciples, I'd have been squirming in my seat. I'd have been thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe he said that out loud. Who does he expect to get on the bandwagon with us if he keeps talking like that? John chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, I am equal with God. Can you imagine such a statement coming from the mouth of a presumed man? I am equal with God. You see, Jesus never refers to God the Father in a generic fashion. He never talks about the Father or the Father who's out there. He always says, my Father or our Father. Jesus puts himself on the same plane as God the Father, co-equal and co-existent and co-eternal, but he's not done. Look at verse 21, John 5, 21. I am the giver of life. Just like the Father can raise the dead, Jesus said, I can raise the dead too. And look, there have been a million false prophets come down the pike over the last hundred centuries or so that claim to have power over sickness, powers to heal, but only Jesus Christ could raise a person from the dead. In verses 22 and 23, he, he claimed, I'm the final judge. I'll be the one who judges all of mankind. I will judge the nations, Jesus said. A lot of people mistakenly assume that they will be judged by the Father someday. 
Not according to Jesus, not according to Paul. Jesus will judge humanity, ironically, because humanity judged Jesus. Verse 24, I determine man's destiny. Verse 24 reads, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me will not be judged by crosses, or will not be judged but crosses over from death to life. Verses 25 to 29, I will raise the dead. There's coming a day, Jesus said, when those who hear my voice will raise from their tomb. And then finally, he said in verse 30, I'm always doing the will of God. That's a pretty presumptuous thing to say, isn't it? Jesus is saying, I always and I only do what the Father wants me to do. But he's not finished. You see, just as there is a a physical hunger that only physical food can satisfy our stomachs, there is a spiritual hunger that only spiritual food can satisfy. When we get to John chapter 6, Jesus contrasts physical food that satisfies just for a moment with spiritual food that is eternal. It's in this context that Jesus makes the most shocking statement of all. It's John 6 and verse 54. Jesus actually said this out loud. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now, let me just give you a hint for a moment. If you have a skeptical relative that you've been trying to get to come to church, you've got a coworker or somebody that you've been trying to get to come to church, don't start with that verse. Grace Community Church is never going to put that on a billboard. Come to Grace Community Church. We eat the flesh of Jesus and we drink. I can barely even finish the sentence in public. It seems so outrageous. What did he mean? That's what we're going to talk about today. John chapter 6 is often referred to as the bread of life discourse. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with bread and fish. He uses the bread to compare himself to the eternal bread of life that comes down from heaven. Now, there were Pharisees in that crowd that day. It's been a long day of feeding and eating and teaching from the master. The sun begins to go down, and Jesus knows those Pharisees are going to try and arrest him. So he slips away from the crowd, and he finds a quiet place to to get some rest. Well, the next morning when the sun comes up, the crowd realizes they've lost Jesus. He fed them yesterday. Well, guess what? They're hungry again. They go in search for Jesus, hoping he'll feed them once again because he fed them yesterday, feed me again today, and Jesus realizes what's happening and capitalizes on on the situation. Jesus said, the problem with you is you want to fill your belly with temporary bread and ignore eternal bread that's standing right in front of you. It's, Matthew, uh, it's John chapter 6, verses 26 and following. He said, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Follow me. Here's what he's saying. It was a miracle to feed 5,000 people, but that's not why they returned. They returned because they were simply hungry. You've overlooked the person of the miracle, and you've focused on the product of the miracle, and that's where you've missed it. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures for eternal life. What a simple and yet profound rule to live by. Why do we work for so many things that spoil? Why do we give up and sacrifice for so much that's only here for a time? 
Jesus said, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. So the crowd wants more bread. In fact, they asked Jesus to give them a sign, just like Moses produced manna back in Exodus chapter 16. When God's nation was wandering through the wilderness, God provided bread from heaven. The Bible calls it manna. And they say, like Moses, why don't you give us that same kind of sign? That's when Jesus makes a very profound statement. It's one of the seven I am statements Jesus made about himself. It comes from John chapter 6 and verse 35. He said, I am the bread of life. You want bread to fall from the sky? I can make that happen, but you're missing the bigger picture. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Of course, they grumble. They don't get it. How in the world can he say such a thing? Then we pick up the story in verse 51 of John chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Again, comparing himself to the manna of the Old Testament. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread, my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can he, this man give us his flesh to eat? Church, this is a simple metaphor, and they missed it. The Bible is filled with metaphors concerning the Son of Man. Jesus' body was no more flesh than he was a lion or a lamb that we sang about a moment ago. It's a metaphor. and the Old and New Testament, the words of Jesus himself are filled with metaphors Regarding Jesus, verse 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Now don't misunderstand because of what we're going to do today. This passage is not referring to the Lord's Supper. John chapter 6 does not teach that the store-bought bread you are about to put into your mouth somehow is the flesh of Jesus, and the grape juice in the cup somehow becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. That's not what John 6 teaches. What we do today is simply remind ourselves of how our servant leader sacrificed that you and I might be nourished on an eternal level, not a temporary level. That's what's going on. In fact, here it is. This is big. If only when we consume Jesus for spiritual nourishment that we gain eternal life. It's only when we consume Jesus as our spiritual nourishment that we inherit or gain eternal life. You see, I have many, many conversations. had one yesterday with a gentleman. They can see what's out there. But what they don't realize is that whatever they're going to achieve or gain or, or get out here typically begins right here. You see, if you see a healthy marriage in front of you, you don't meet with a pastor, say a few prayers, memorize a few Bible verses, and bam, you're there. No, it begins here. It begins with understanding Christ's servant leadership, his sacrifice for you individually, allowing that to nourish you spiritually. You respond to it, and before you know it, you're on the track, you're on the path to being that kind of husband or being that kind of wife. 
What Jesus is saying here in John 6 is unless you consume my death for your sins as spiritual nourishment, you have no part in me. Now, that leads me to three questions, and we'll move forward. Question number one, why am I searching? Why are you searching? The crowd in John chapter 6 searched for Jesus simply to gain another meal. That's all they wanted. There are many people who come to this church and others like it for the first time or the first time in a long time, and it's only because they're hungry. They're looking for a rabbit's foot redeemer, really. They're looking for a scratch-off Jesus is what they want. They've gotten themselves in a tight space. They don't like the condition of their marriage. They're frustrated about the course of their future, so they decide to give something religious a try. Let's talk to a pastor. Let's read a verse. Let's pray a prayer. I'm asking you, why are you searching? Jesus said, before you can ever reach it, whatever it is, you have to begin here. Jesus is the end of your spiritual search for meaning. It all begins here. Here's question number two. Who answers the big questions in my life? Who answers the big questions in your life? Why am I here? What's the meaning of all of this? What is my purpose? What happens when we die? Where am I going? Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection have answered the big questions in my life since I was in college. Who answers yours? You see, many are content just sort of going through the motions, pursuing one temporary passion after another, to try and fill that emptiness, to try and cover that doubt. And let's face it, we are either blessed, as some would see it, or I might see it as cursed in America to have the resources to chase one passion after another, all the while ignoring things eternal. In other words, I can fight the emptiness for a while by chasing this recreation or pursuing that passion or chasing down this interest. And when that fails to satisfy, I have the money, the resources, the flexibility, the time, I can go chase something else. Jesus said, don't do that. I'm the end of your spiritual search for meaning. Question number three, have I consumed Christ and has he consumed me? You see, when Jesus said, unless you consume my flesh, unless you consume my blood, you have no part in me. What he's referring to is what we talk about all the time, authentic faith. Mark chapter 8, self-denial and cross-bearing. Unless I look to the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ as my starting point, if that's where I begin in every pursuit in my life, I have no real part, certainly no eternal part with Christ. I want you to picture Jesus on the cross for a moment. Imagine the suffering he's endured, the beating, the humiliation. He's been spit upon. He's bloody. He's bruised. His bones are fractured. He's probably barely conscious. He is dying on a cross, not for himself. He's dying for you. He is doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself, what I couldn't do for myself, he is paying a holy God for your righteousness. That's what he's doing. 
consume that for a moment. Take that in. Consume his death. Let it consume you. Without it, there can be no forgiveness for sins. But don't stop there. Think about his resurrection. Consume his resurrection. The tomb is empty. Let a resurrected servant leader consume you. Let it wash over you. Because if Jesus couldn't walk away from that tomb, then he's no better savior than me or you. Let it consume you. Once again, what we're about to do is simply remember, by eating this store-bought bread and drinking this store-bought juice, you are not consuming the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. This is done to remind us that we have. That's why Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves prior to eating. Have you trusted the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your eternal spiritual nourishment? Unless you have, you have no part in him. Unless you do, you ought not do this. What we're about to do is a reflection of the supreme sacrifice made by the bread of life. And let me tell you, church, it matters. God bless you. It matters why we do this. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus broke bread. He gave it to his disciples. Take and eat. This is my body. He took a cup. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. It is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. It matters how we do this. Let each of us look at our lives. Let us recognize our sin. Let us see the grace of God in the body and blood of Christ, broken for us, poured out for our forgiveness. It matters that we do this. Let us eat the bread, drink from the cup, remember the Lord's death in our place on the cross, looking for his return. Amen. In a moment, the music will begin playing and we're going to all stand. And how I'd like this to work is we'll start in the very back, the very back of the church. You come down these two middle aisles. Someone will serve you the bread, pick up a cup, and then return to your seat along each exterior wall. When you get to your seat, go ahead and have a seat. And continue to sing with us. After we've all been served, then I will lead us. Would you stand, please? Go ahead, Chris.
that Jesus was betrayed, we have very specific descriptions of what went on. You can start in John chapter 13 and read for several chapters of what that night, that, what that evening looked like. It was Passover. They had gathered to celebrate the feast of Passover. And at one point, when the bread came by Jesus, I'm sure he, he paused for a moment, he pulled a piece from the loaf, and he said, men, This is now representative of my flesh, which will be broken for you. And from now on, whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me.
in a similar fashion, I'm sure, as they were enjoying a meal together, the, the cup of wine came by. He grabbed it and he paused and he said, men, this is now a new covenant. It represents a new agreement between God and humanity. For this is a new covenant in my blood. From now on, whenever you drink it, I want you to remember me. Our Father, it is with a deep and sincere sense of humility that we bow before you, giving thanks for the sacrifice of your Son in my place, in our place, for my sin, for our sin. He hung on the cross. He buried our transgressions. He covered our shame. He washed away all of our sin. My God, what a leader. Father, go with us this day with your blessing upon each of us. May we walk, live, and act as though we have consumed the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray it. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.